Stand by for action because in the next hour or so, anything can happen. Because it's the film file, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And this is The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and we're just a couple of old film geeks. You all right, Andy? Yeah, it's, it, we're, I'm, I'm ready for a week off. I've got a week off next week. Oh, have you? I wish I had. I so need one. I always have a recharge my batteries week off just before Christmas because obviously Christmas You're the man. very busy. Yeah, aside from that, it's it's been busy-ish at work, but dropping on and off because... There's, there's something about 22 guys kicking like a ball around a field or something going on at the moment that keeps distracting people. Uh, and by the time this show airs, either people will be annoying the hell out of me by saying it, singing, it's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming home. Or I'll be annoying the hell out of them by saying, they're coming home, they're coming home, they're coming home. <laughs> and any football fans out there, tough. Yeah, you probably can tell that we're not a couple of football fans. Hey, I, I've got friends... Who really surprised me? Um, who were into geekery stuff and into into football heavily? I, I never thought the two oh, the, were conclu- uh, uh, conducive. But Scott is Scott is oh, really? big into his football. Yeah, he's uh, yeah. He, Scott, him, our former co-presenter. Yeah, he's uh, yeah. He, he's a big comic book nerd. He's a big film geek like us, and but he really loves his football. So you know, takes all sorts. I mean, I suppose if you go to cosplay, you might as well cosplay in one arena or another (laughs) hey i've got some interesting news uh, over the last week so uh, a couple of my students went we were looking for a a film podcast and we went straight to uh, spotify and your show came up first and we didn't know it was it was my show they started (laughs) listening going i I recognize that voice and it turns out it was it was uh, it was you and i so we must be doing something well we must be at some kind of top of the listings for uh, people who didn't know were looking for film and found us. Well, that that beautifully ties into some of the notes that I've got in front of me, because as anyone who uses Spotify will know, um, Spotify wrapped. Yeah, I've, I've not, this wasn't a thing for me until this week. I, I've Every year, I love looking through the Spotify wrapped stats, and I got my Spotify wrapped stats for myself, but also for the podcast. Now, for myself, um, it appears that I'm a big fan of Zuzu, because my top five most re-listened to tracks this year were all Zuzu tracks. So I've become a bit obsessed. Uh, but... <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's a fine line between <laughs> obsession and stalking. Yeah, I think she's going to start taking out restraining orders against me <laughs> soon. Uh, but the Spotify rap for podcasters, uh, we got the breakdown of the stats for the podcast for this year. Yeah. So we've done 3,497 minutes worth of content this year. Oh my goodness. Which is more than 99% of other podcasters out there. Wow. Doesn't that mean we deserve some sort of a badge, medal, hat? Stuff like this is probably why we're coming up quite quick in the listings when people are searching for stuff. Right. Stats for the breakdowns of what countries uh, are listening to us. Obviously, the UK is our biggest listener. Yeah. Um, Taiwan has beaten the USA into second place. <laughs> Taiwan. Welcome, Hello, Taiwan. Taiwan, to the gang. Hello. Uh, Hello, everyone from Taiwan. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We don't know who you are. Drop us a line. Say hello. Well, can you believe it was around about this time last year that we discovered the USA was our second most listened to country. We were big in Utah, uh, if I remember. Yeah, but they're now down into third place, uh, followed by India and Colombia in fourth and fifth place. Our top listened to episode this year was episode 103 called Before Screaming, which would have been when I spoke about Before Sunset and Scream came out. 
61% of our listeners are also subscribers. So thanks for that. That means that it's not just people dipping in and just listening to one episode and disappearing. 61 of people who listen on a regular basis are also subscribed. We're in the top 30% of most followed podcasts. Wow. Yeah. This is this is a Christmas present come early. And this is only on Spotify because we are on yep. other platforms. This is just the Spotify wrapped stats. Uh, 17 of our subscribers have us in their top 10 most listened to podcasts. Hello, you 17% you. You're all of you very, very beautiful. 16 of them have us in their top five. Oh, you've, you're even more beautiful. And for six people out there, we're their number one most listened to podcast. Oh, we should. If there's six people, we can, we can have a round for tea. Huge love to all of them. Now, I reckon that one of those six is going to be Stephen Young, who works at the cinema. Because <laughs> genuinely, as soon as the podcast goes out, you can time. If the podcast goes out, it's one hour 30. One hour 30 later, he'll fire me a message on face on Facebook. He's like, fantastic episode this week. Really loved you talking about this. He loves us. Uh, so big shout out to Stephen. You are possibly my number one fan. And he's he's not on Mastodon, but he has taken part in the Mastodon challenge by messaging me on Facebook. There will be another Mastodon challenge today. Um, well, great. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Film File family. Um, there are some newbies in because I've met them. And hi to Taiwan, uh, USA. You've got to do a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, Colombia, hello. <laughs> India, was it? India in fourth place, yeah. Uh, one of my favourite countries that I've ever visited. So hello. Very welcome to come over and record from your house somewhere in India. Or as Columbia. long as you pay for it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so have a whip round. Bring us over and we will gladly, gladly record from your house about the film that you want to talk about. How's that? That's a challenge. <laughs> we get no takers there. <laughs> Mastodon challenge for this week. Yeah. Can you give us some money? <laughs> give us some money to fly to your house to record the show. <laughs> I'm not that sure how well awesome, that will go down. That would be awesome. Going around someone else's house and recording. Well, we used to record in the same room. Yep. Until lockdown. And then, uh, well, we, we are... just kind of fell into this. It makes it easier for the syncing up. Not getting dressed. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing it? I mean, I am wearing clothes today. <laughs> He's wearing pants today, folks. He's wearing pants. It's that Sunday. It's that in the advent calendar. The two go together. Um, but yeah, Mastodon Challenge. So last week's Mastodon Challenge was Lee asked, asked you all, and I posted it out because he doesn't do Mastodon. Not yet, that is. This is the time of year when people rush to see festive movies. Are there any films that aren't Christmas time set, Christmas themed, that for some reason or another you always identify with this time of year and go back to? And I said that for me, I always watch Back to the Future on Christmas Day. Got no idea why. It just feels like a Christmas film, even though it's got nothing to do with Christmas. We'll start with Stephen, who didn't do it on Mastodon, but he heard it on the podcast. And so he sent me a message. Uh, he said, I'm not joining Mastodon, but I, our current contrast, he kind of got the question a bit wrong at the start. He went for Christmas films and said, it's a wonderful life. And then Krampus. So just said like anything that you don't think is Christmassy. And I was like, oh yeah, the lovely bones. He's determined to get me to watch the lovely bones. I've promised him so many times that we're, we're going to do it a deep dive at, some dive at point. one point. It, it will be because list. I've still not watched it, but sometime in the new year, Stephen, we'll get around to it. Lord of the Rings, the extended editions, he considers Christmas films. Um, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Highlander. Wow. Cloud Atlas. And Grand, Bud Grand Budapest Hotel. Interesting mix, and I'm, yeah, I'm a, a good, some good choices there. 
I can kind of see how Lord of the Rings has been. It's become one of those Christmas traditions by people because it was released. (laughs) It was released before Christmas, and so each of them will resonate with the memories of the Christmases that they came out. Um, But yeah, it's it's a very diverse range that he's got, and Lovely Bones is one. I mean, I've not seen the film, but I've heard that it's not very, very festive. (laughs) No, no, the murder of a young girl. No matter how you how you spin it. I know there's a lot of snow, but it's it's not very festive. So what else did we get? Over on Mastodon, Grant Bogle. Again, Lord of the Rings trilogy. And right. also the other one is the Harry Potter series. Now, both of these franchises came out towards the end of the years. And you can kind of see, again, how they get themed with it. But also the Harry Potter films do tend to land on uh, terrestrial TV. I get that one. Every Christmas. I, I do. I think the fantasy element makes it, makes it feel festive. Yeah. Julie, who's at Sardine Tin said, I suppose the very ob- obvious choices are The Sound of Music, although I think that seems to get scheduled more over New Year these days, and The Wizard of Oz. Uh, Wizard of Oz made quite a few uh, jump-ins, because Squiddle Leader also said Wizard of Oz as a child. Yeah, uh, It was always on on Christmas Day. Uh, but also Death on the Nile, probably because it was often scheduled just after Christmas. Yeah, there's, there was always an Agatha Christie yeah, around the Christmas period. Movie. I think that's when I first saw The Mirror Cracked, actually, was one Christmas. Ken B, who's um, it, it, it's me brother-in-law, Ken, um, oh, okay. at, the, <laughs> I can. at the Naked Airplane. Um, he said that less so in recent years, as it seems to have been pushed onto the Easter bandwagon for obvious reasons, but Watership Down used to always be on TV around Christmas. I remember rediscovering it when I caught it on TV one year, so I do kind of associate it with the Christmas season a bit. Nothing like spreading a bit of bunny bunny rabbit fear. I mean, cheer at Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I remember that it used to be quite regularly over Christmas, that this. Yeah, because it was animated, wasn't it? That was always the thing. Put an animated film on for the kids. Yeah, and traumatise them for life. (laughs) I'm still getting over Bambi. I'm still getting past my trauma of that. I still have to go to counselling every now and then. Um, so, yeah, once again, uh, nice few responses there. And aside from the lovely bones, I can, I can genuinely see most of those films. I mean, Grand Budapest Hotel, not very really festive, but it's got that whimsy. Yes. Yeah, I see that. I can see it, actually, I can see in, in most of those. Uh, for me, mine was always The Beatles, because I remember as a kid seeing for the first time The Beatles Let It Be over Christmas. Um, and Hard Day's Night, and they for me they're synonymous with the Christmas films. To for me, I don't know why, just associate them with that time of year because there'd always be some kind of Beatles on Yellow Submarine. Help yeah. was always shown around Boxing Day. I seem to remember in the past, of course, Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, they repeat it because it disappeared for years and years, and the BBC showed it about mm. twenty years ago, something like that. So, yeah, yeah, the Beatles. I, I'd always like a good ghost story at Christmas. Yeah. Uh, so any of the M.R. James stuff that's usually on varying degrees of quality, but I do love a good, good ghost story at Christmas. Let's see what ends up becoming the more modern, non-Christmas Christmas films, thanks to their scheduling on TV. We will be doing, in a couple of weeks' time, our own look at what's coming on TV over Christmas before we take our break, which we're call- calling the Radio Time Circling Challenge. <laughs> it's about that time of year that that Christmas in fact it's this week the festive radio times comes out bless it and I'm, I genuinely have to pick it up and circle loads of pages even though we don't need to watch things at the time that they're shown anymore we have streaming as an option but it's tradition isn't it it is and so for this week's what's this week's Mastodon challenge well as Andy said right at the top end of the program it is kind of the sports season with this 
very strangely timed World Cup. And I'm hoping that's not going to become a Christmas tradition. So I'm going to ask about sports movies. Do you have to be into sports to like a good sport movie? Uh, Not necessarily. So this week's Mastodon Challenge is, what's your favourite sport movie? There's plenty to go at, whether that's baseball, I can name quite a few, football, Escape to Victory, Mm -hmm. boxing, Rocky, clearly one of the greatest films of all time. What is your favourite sports movie? And that's this week's Mastodon Challenge. Hmm. So, what have we got in this week's show? Well, we've got a plethora of great reviews that include... Slumberland, Troll, and Violent Night. Violent Night landed at the cinemas this week. And let's just say it's diehard, but properly set at Christmas. And I've got no bone box, white noise. We've got a deep dive into a festive favourite. Is it our favourite? Is it going to be our elf on the shelf? Or is it going to be a gnome sent home as we talk about John Favreau's elf? But before that, we've got some juicy items to unwrap in this week's The News. So before we get into the news, let's take a look at this week's box office. So the box office in the US this weekend started strong for Violent Night on Friday, where it shot straight into first place. However, over the weekend, the family audiences clearly flocked in to cinemas and brought Black Panther back to the top of the charts again, retaining its first place position for yet another week, taking 17.5 million over the weekend. Violent Night finished its weekend on 13.5 million. A really good start for a film that's probably holed over well as we get further and further into December. Third place is held by Strange World. It's still trickling some money in, but this is not going to be a film that's going to break even at this rate. The Menu holds into number four, taking another 3.5 million. And New Entry Devotion hits the number five spot with 2.7 million. Here in the UK, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical holds the first place again as more family crowds flock in to catch this musical extravaganza based on the beloved tale. It took another 2.5 million in the UK this weekend, taking its box office total so far to just under 8 million. Black Panther is still holding in in second place, taking another 1.5 million. It's up to almost 30 million in the UK, which is a decent figure, but the drop off has been significant. Violet Knight enters the top five into the third place, taking 822,000. Strange World holding into fourth place, adding another 442,000 onto its total. And the menu still doing well in the UK with another 334,000 added on. So we are, is it just over a week till Avatar opens? Just over a week, yeah. I've got my week off work and then I return to work straight as Avatar opens, uh, which is also uh, the the final of that um, ball kicking contest thing that's going on. So it's going to be interesting to see what that weekend's box office looks like as a result. I've still not seen a lot of buzz about it yet. Uh, perhaps that's me, perhaps because I'm on the periphery of it these days. Is there a heat for it? James Cameron seems to be the one who's doing the most mass marketing at the moment. I mean, he's been popping into interviews left, right and centre. And we, we reported a couple of weeks ago that he said that if this one's not as successful, he knows how to edit the third film together to make it wrap up all the story. Yeah. Uh, because they sh- they've shot the second and third back to back and all that's got to be done on the, s- the third one now is all the effects work and the digital mapping, et cetera, et cetera. All the physicality has been done. 
that sounded like he was getting a bit like, oh, cold feet. And then he said, like, it needs this one needs to make two billion in order to be considered successful. And it's like, oh, he's getting a bit worried. But now he's he's got his he's got his ego back. And um he's now basically said that whilst this one will be like how this one performs way of water will be a determining factor as to whether he can go ahead with the fourth and fifth, he then feels that he could go, do even more than that. And he's spoken about how he could possibly do a sixth and seventh film as well. So it's very optimistic. Yeah. I mean, he said, we'll probably finish movie three regardless because it's all shot. We'll have to really cater for it to not seem like it was worth the additional investment. We'll have to leave a smoking hole in the ground. Now, hopefully we get to tell the whole thing because five's better than four, four's better than three and three's better than two. Should the success keep rolling? He says the story has further places he can take it and has already an idea for that sixth and seventh film. However, he does admit that he might not be able to do so by that point because, in his words, I'd be 89 by then. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to make Avatar movies indefinitely with the amount of energy required. I'd have to train somebody else to do this. So it sounds like he's he's planning that if this second film is as successful as they hope, that he will then start handing it over further down the line for other people to pick up the reins and tell other stories in the Pandora universe. I mean, that, that all depends on whether the fans are going to turn out for it. And not just the fans, but, but filmgoers in particular, because if it doesn't land with filmgoers, then I guess they'll just sneak out three as proposed and, and that'll be it. But however, uh, I don't know if you saw that Willow landed this week. There are now options where you can extend the story that doesn't have to be in cinemas yep the way that those sorts of stories are now kind of expected on tv those big quest stories so who knows not i also related to the box office now we know that last weekend glass onion had a very good box office despite only limited release and it was only for that one week and netflix were being very very cautious about revealing the full figures Um, but the ceo reed hastings has conceded that the one-week theatrical preview release left a lot of money on the table. But he does follow that by saying that they're not actually trying to build a theatrical business. Rather, they were interested in customer satisfaction on their own service, the Netflix one, and the way to market things. This one-week release was nothing more than a promotional tactic for what they consider the real release of Glass Onion on Netflix on December the 23rd. And for that, from that perspective, the move worked great because now the buzz is everywhere about this film. People have missed the chance to see it and now they're clamouring to watch it as quickly as they can when it gets to Netflix in a few weeks. Uh, There is speculation that the film will get another cinematic release. Ryan Johnson has said that he would love to see it on more screens across more of the world. However, this won't be until it's actually released on streaming now. So Ryan Johnson firmly believes that some people will still even though it's on streaming, take the opportunity to go out and watch it on the big screen. And I kind of agree because, you know, you'd look at like whenever we show like older films at cinemas and they always sell out screenings, even though people can watch it on whatever streaming service they want. People like that cinema experience for some films. And I think that there will be an audience for Glass Onion on the big screen come January when releases kind of drop off and windows will be open to be able to give it like a couple of weeks run. It remains to be seen if Netflix decide to go with it. They're purely about their streaming service and how to market it, and they've used cinemas to market one of their films. Let's just see what happens in the next few weeks. So uh, a couple of months ago when Disney had their big event, there were a lot of trailers, and a lot of trailers that 
people expected to see that didn't necessarily turn up. Anyway, this week, they've kind of made up for it. Yes, uh, the Brazil Comic Con took place this week, and there's been a few trailers released on the back of that, including two particular ones that we've been clamoring for for a while. One that I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about and now I'm excited about, and one that I'd heard about and now I need to see this film. So let's start with the two huge ones. So you're talking about Mario Brothers. Oh, no. <laughs> the Super Mario Brothers. I'll I kind of forgot the Super Mario later. Brothers one. <laughs> let's start with Indiana Jones. Well, we mentioned uh, about Indiana Jones last week after uh, we reported about James Mangold getting into a, a Twitter spat with a fan. And uh, we said that I was looking forward to it because there were now some stills out there. You were still a little cautious. I'm sold. Are you cautious? I don't want to be sold on it. I am really forcing myself to not get giddy with excitement. But boy, that trailer was great. We now have a title as well. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. The, The trailer just had all that magic of Indiana Jones. Perfectly encapsulated. Loads of throwbacks and references and nods to the earlier films but looking like it's done naturally, not as a shoehorned, oh, remember this, nostalgia berries. I'm in. Really, really hate myself for doing this, but I am so in on this film because please don't disappoint me, Mangold. Mangold won't disappoint me. I have confidence in this. Let's be honest. the, The problem with that fourth film was that while Spielberg was directing, it was George Lucas pulling all the strings because it ne- he was insisting that it gets made how he wants it. With Lucas nothing to do with yeah. this, it makes me smile, it makes me hopeful, and it makes me want it to be a perfect final film. Yes. Let, let's hope. It looked great. It did look great. As you said, it captured everything you want about uh, an Indiana Jones movie. All the doubts about Harrison Ford being too old it was sort yeah. of celebrated, I thought. Uh, it, it felt natural that... He, I mean, he looked great as soon as we saw him in the fedora and the beat-up leather jacket, and there was a great gag with the whip. It, it just felt... It felt so right. It, I, I didn't for a moment think, ooh, Harrison Ford's very old in this. It felt natural that we'd followed the progression of this man's life. The humour was there. Some great-looking stunt work. Yep, totally in. The other trailer that we've been clamouring for... And it's not really a surprise that we've got this, given that the holiday special landed pretty recently. And it was always going to follow with the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And boy, do I want this fed directly into my brain. (laughs) Because this time they've done running, as we found out. Loads of teasers of backstory of Rocket throughout there. I squealed like a giddy little fanboy when Lila popped up on screen. And for those who don't know who Lila is. I I didn't. I didn't. Lila is Rocket's one true love from his first limited series run way back in 1984 or 85. Wow. She's another genetically experimented on animal, this time an otter. And I have loved that character since all those years ago when that four-issue run came out. She She was also in the... It was an Incredible Hulk issue. That was the first appearance of Rocket and Lila. Um, she was in there, but didn't really right. do much. But it was in the four-part limited series that, you know, it developed and fleshed out the relationship and the personalities of them all. And just seeing her on that brief hugging Rocket moment, it made a big beaming smile come over my face. This is, think of the biggest fanboy thing that could happen to you and imagine that happening that's what it came across like because i have absolutely loved rocket since that first comic that i read all those decades ago 
And so I've been so excited watching him in Guardians of the Galaxy. But to see them actually fleshing out his background within the films, that's it. I'm completely in. You also had a, I love the colourful spacesuits. Yes, the, uh, very much a throwback to uh, when they reinvented the, the Guardians of the Galaxy and they did have a very particular yep. uniform, especially Star-Lord, and that, that was in there. The actual spacesuits as well for going out into zero gravity are very colourful, which a load of people online have compared to Among Us and Teletubbies. That's clearly been compared to by generations of people who have never seen the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. I mean, I know it's probably just like an obscure (laughs) niche film that not many people have seen, but come on, people, get your references correct. James Gunn has has confirmed that the inspiration for the, the bright red, bright blue, bright yellow aspect was 2001. Of course it is. He's not going to be inspired by Among Us. Uh, We saw in one very brief shot the appearance of Adam Warlock. Not enough to give us much about how it's going to be presented, but um, enough to say, you know what, that looks like Adam Warlock. Uh, And did I see the High Evolutionary in there? You did indeed. The High Evolutionary is going to be pulling all the strings in the background. Because it looks like it's set on what was known as the Counter-Earth, which goes back way goes back to oh the first run on on warlock yeah adam warlock there's a lot to unpack on repeated viewings of that trailer especially if you're a proper comic book geek like the two of us are but if you're just general audience the general audiences are lapping it up as well because it looks like that kind of fun that we're expecting from the guardians okay as i said we also had the uh, super mario brothers trailer which landed which just looked kind of generic to me it ticked all the right boxes for me. Did it? it had all the little references to various games of from the Mario series in there, enough to make me go, you know what, this just looks like a fun animated Mario movie. It, it has been interesting to see some people complaining that, oh, of course they've gone woke. And it's like, what on earth are you on about? And it turns out some people feel that the bit where he bursts through the clouds and the road has turned to a rainbow and they're driving on the rainbow road is wokeism being inserted. Which all that tells me is that the people who are complaining about it have never played a Mario game in their life, especially Mario Kart. <laughs> Isn't that usually the case? Which Rainbow Road level has always been the most difficult racing level ever since the very first Mario Kart game. It's always had a Rainbow Road. This would be like saying that, oh, Thor went woke when it had the Rainbow Bridge. Yeah, because uh, Norse legends and mythologies <laughs> had that as well. People just throw out the woke thing for anything that they don't understand. Yeah. And they don't understand the term woke, clearly. And then we had the trailer for Elizabeth Banks' new comedy thriller, Cocaine Bear. Doesn't that just look bonkers (laughs) and fun? It does. It kind of had, for me, a bit of a Sam Raimi feel to it. A a, a bit of a James Gunn feel to it. I know they work together. It just looked totally bonkers. (laughs) And it's kind of based on a little bit of of a real incident where a drug runner in the 1980s dropped a stash of cocaine in the Chattachewi National Forest, if yep. I remember, in North Georgia, that was found by a black bear who gobbled it all up. And as a springboard, the movie tells an imagined story of what might have happened in the following 24 hours. And the film stars uh, Kerry Russell, and it looks it looks bonkers. You hear the title, Cocaine Bear, and you just think, what? And then you watch the trailer and go, oh, okay. Yeah, but it looks very bleak and black in its comedy. And I'm I'm on I'm well up for this. This is gonna to be top of my list to watch in January. And it's produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, yeah. so that kind of gives you a wee bit of a clue. I'm gonna mention one final trailer which dropped this morning or late last night, depending where you are in the world, and that was the full trailer 
for The Last of Us. Now, I've been harking mm. on about The Last of Us since it was announced, uh, but the full trailer landed, and boy, did it not just suppress expectation. It made me, as like you with, with Guardians of the Galaxy, I've been wanting it pumped into my brain from the get-go. Yeah, I've not seen the latest Last of Us trailer yet. Oh, it's very new. <laughs> it really is very, very new. I'll be checking that out because... I'm looking forward to it almost as much almost as much as you are. Yeah. I love the story. I think it, it's great casting in it as well. It just looked epic. It looks like a great adaptation. Epic. Uh, the final trailer that caught my eye this week, and this is one that I'd kind of forgotten about, and that's Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Oh, yeah. that's the, I didn't watch that one. I, I'm, I'm not a big Transformers fan and uh, felt stung, apart from, and we keep talking about it because we love it, Bumblebee. Well, this has more echoes of Bumblebee than anything that Michael okay. Bay did. You've got the original Generation 1 style of Optimus Prime in there. And it looked, I mean, it looks like it's got more action than Bumblebee had because they're ramping it up for this one. But it looks colourful. The problem that Michael Bay wants is all, all the Transformers just looked grey. They just all looked dull. You needed the bright colour. You needed to have like that cartoony kind of aspect. And this looks like it's got it. And it looks so much fun. I'm in. I'm in for it. I don't want to be excited for a Transformers film, but Bumblebee put it on the right step. So I'm willing to give this one a shot. And if this one pays off well, it'll prove one thing and one thing only, that Michael Bay should never have touched this franchise. <laughs> Show us on the toy Transformer where Michael Bay touched <laughs> He touched me on my Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> as we're getting closer and closer to award season and the short list for what's going to be available for nominations will be rolling out in the next week or so, uh, with the final nominations being confirmed by the second week of January. Obviously, all the buzz and chatter is around how the Oscars is going to play out this year, because we've spoken about it a few times on the show. The past few years have been quite disappointing. Now, one of the biggest disappointments of last year was when they'd announced that certain categories, original score, makeup and hairstyling, documentary short, film editing, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound were cut from the main telecast. And it was like, so these people are worthy of the respect of the industry. We mentioned it, didn't we? We talked about it. Yep. The reason for cutting them was to tighten up the show so it didn't overrun. And then the show overran by the worst that it'd done in the past 10 years. So it didn't work at all. Well, they've confirmed that this year it's a return back to the traditional and all 23 categories of the awards will be telecast live as part of the broadcast. Bill Kramer, the CEO of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, announced this news to Variety on Tuesday morning, confirming that they're not cutting anything this year. They're going back to how it used to be. And this is the best move because they don't need to try to tighten things up. I'm as interested to find out who's got documentary short because that's the new upcoming documentary filmmakers who will be delivering quality documentaries in the future, hopefully, as I am about who's going to get the best actor. Everyone is equally deserving of the time on screen. Yeah, or everybody who works on a film are all part of the finished production. doesn't matter how small you are. Clearly... The above the line crew are the ones that get all the plaudits, but everybody is important to the production of a movie and, and they should be celebrated as much as anyone else. Mm. Yeah, let's give them all the respect for every Oscar that they can when the awards show in only a couple of months time. And I'll be reporting, as usual, on the main winners and losers of the night. Now, here's a story that caught my eye because I know I'll be going to see it. That is that Ang Lee is directing his son in a Bruce Lee biopic. So the guy who brought us Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 
is to make uh, a brand new movie about the life of Kung Fu superstar Bruce Lee. Yep. Um, his son Mason Lee is going to play uh, the martial arts legend Bruce Lee. And Dan Futterman is penning the script. Oh, that's interesting. He's taken over from Jean Castelli, Alex Law, Mabel Chung and Wells Tower, who've all had attempts at it. Uh, Mason Lee appeared in The Hangover Part 2 and also his father's Billy Lynn's long half-time walk, uh, along with more recent Taiwanese comedy Stand By Me. He's 32, the same age that Bruce Lee was when he suddenly died, which makes him the right ballpark age. I'm interested with this. Uh, Lee is making a film about Lee, starring Lee. I mean, this this is as good as the marketing as they needed for the Hulk when Don't Make Me Angly. <laughs> yes. But um, <laughs> I'm interested in this. And, you know, Ang Lee... He gets some criticism for some of his film choices, and I do think that the criticism levied against him on The Hulk was completely undeserved. I've got a lot of love for that film. Yeah, yeah, it was a very clever movie. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't as successful as we'd liked, but it was... Uh... There was a lot going on that, that was to like about it. Yeah, let's not forget that Ang Lee gave us Brokeback Mountain and, like you say, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So the, yes. the guy knows how to, de- how to deliver on quality and epic storytelling. And you can't get more quality and epic storytelling than Bruce Lee's life. Uh, Marvellous. Um, looking forward to it. A uh, huge Bruce Lee fan, as we've talked about on previous shows. So I am very, very interested in this. Did you see Tarantino uh, spark a media storm and a social media storm earlier this month? Did he mention comics? He did. Well, there you go. If anything's going to to uh, get everyone frothing at the mouth, it's a director or actor dissing comic book movies. He basically said that Marvel actors aren't movie stars. In his view, it's the MCU character that's the star and gets people into the theatre, not the actors playing them. And you know what? I can kind of see the perspective there because did people rush to see Captain America the First Avengers because it was Chris Evans? No. They went to see it because it's Captain America. Did people go to see Iron Man because it was Robert Downey Jr.? The guy was on a career low before Iron Man. People weren't flocking to go and see Robert Downey Jr. They went to see Iron Man. Do people go to see Superman films because of the actor playing it? No, they go to see it because it's Superman. Do they go and see James Bond movies yeah. because of the actor? So I can kind of see what he's saying, whilst at the same time, over time, those actors become synonymous with the characters, and then it becomes about the actor involved. And if you swap the actor out, maybe we'll see a change of um, audiences. But one thing that interested me when he said all this and sparked a lot of debate was like, hang on a minute, didn't he work with Samuel L. Jackson quite a few times in his films? And how does Samuel L. Jackson... You mean the Oscar-winning yes. Samuel L. Jackson. Um, how does Samuel L. Jackson feel about this, given how tied into the MCU he is? Um, now, we know that Jackson has had a long and varied career, but he's a big part of the MCU as Nick Fury. And so it was inevitable that at some point someone would ask him, what did he think of what Quentin said? And the host of the Two Bears, One Cave podcast on The View have asked him about Tarantino's comments, to which he replied, it takes an actor to be those particular characters. And the sign of movie stardom has always been what? Asses in seats. What are we talking about? That's not a big controversy for me to know that. Apparently, these actors are movie stars. Chadwick Boseman is Black Panther. You can't refute that. And he's a movie star. It sounds like Sam Jackson doesn't really agree with Quentin Tarantino here. And I'd love to see the two go face to face on this one. This That would be a great argument to watch live. They should be in a ring. <laughs> uh, they should both doff gloves uh, and, and finish it using the Marcus's Queensbury rules. Uh, and I think it should be for pay-per-view television and the money goes to charity. Am I overstretching it a bit there? <laughs> I don't think you're stretching it enough. <laughs> so I'm quickly going to stay with Marvel because... 
Uh, we mentioned last week that there has been a change of personnel over at Disney with Bob Iger coming back as, as the Walt Disney Company CEO. And he's leading some major changes since the departure or the forced departure, by the looks of it, of Bob Chapek. Uh, who has been blamed for a lot of the issues that have happened at Disney. And if you want to know what those could be, listen to last week's show, because we went to it in detail. There has been some criticism on Phase 4, uh, a lot of TV shows, disappointment with things like Thor, Love and Thunder and Doctor Strange, and some underwhelming uh, movies, at least by critics and box office, for The Eternals. Anyway, it seems to be that they want to get everything back on shape for phases five and six, and they are looking to reevaluate its release lineup. And it seems, according to reports, that they were aware that phase four took a dip in quality, and those concerns could be just as messy as Disney has been across the board. So expect shifts in release schedules for some projects, changes in media formats for others, and in most extreme and probably unlikely, some cancellations of projects. But it does look as though they are taking this idea that Marvel has oversaturated the, the market. If you think about how many TV shows mm. we've had and therefore how many hours of Marvel we've had over the last year, that there seems to be an understanding that maybe if they keep pushing it, the bubble is going to burst. Yeah, I mean, as much as a huge fan of comic books, I am. And as much of a huge fan of the Marvel movies and TV shows, I am. I don't necessarily want up to five films coming out in one year. Stretch no. them out. Two per year will be more than fine. Yeah. Spend money on other projects that aren't comic book related so you don't just oversaturate the market. Give some balance. Give some different kind of stories. Don't churn out TV series after TV series. I'm still looking forward to each and every one of them, but I'll happily wait. I'll happily wait yeah. a few months longer for each one. I'd rather that than four years from now. There's no comic book products getting made because no one's watching anymore. Yeah, I mean, talk seems to be in this discussion is that probably less TV shows are more of the one-off specials like we saw with Guardians mm. and we saw with A Werewolf by Night as a way to introduce new characters. Yeah, And sticking with Marvel, Michael Gandolfini from The Many Saints of Newark, the son of the late legendary uh, James Gandolfini, has reportedly landed a major role opposite Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio in Daredevil Born Again. We don't know who that is. I've got a, I'm going to offer a, uh, 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 no, I'm not going to offer some speculation. I'm, I'm going to think about it and and see if I'm right, as opposed to muddying the water with with, uh, with nonsense, yeah. in case I'm absolutely <laughs> way off. And, and Game of Thrones actress Kate Dickey has scored the role of a villain for the second season of Loki, joining the cast that includes, obviously, Tom Hiddleston, Owen Wilson, Sophia DiMartino, Eugene Cordero, Tara Strong and Raphael Cazal. Um, Hiddleston, of course, returning as the god of mischief and still in trouble with the TVA, Time Variance Authority. I'm looking forward to another slice of Loki, but like I said, I'll happily wait as long as it takes them to make sure that it works for me. Absolutely. It's probably worth noting as well that stretching out the release schedules and not rushing too many things into production and oversaturating will allow them to tackle one of the biggest criticisms that particularly this phase of Marvel has had, that the effects work has been a bit weak because the studio effects studios have been reportedly under pressure to deliver on unfair deadlines. There's reports of some of the films such as a uh, Thor love and thunder. By the time it got to Disney plus, they tweaked and touched up some of the effects work that they didn't get time to do before it came out. Allow more time. 
don't put the pressure on the stu- on the effects teams and make the quality product that it all deserves to be. Jumping over to DC land, uh, did you see the official poster that reaffirms there's going to be a theatrical release for Blue Beetle? Yes, uh, just a, a, a rather glorious looking uh, scarab design. But no, it, it's a beautiful poster. It's a simple, effective, and yeah, it got me excited for that coming out on the big screen. And we know that over at DC, James Gunn has been confirming that the crossover potential of the new DC universe will run across multiple mediums, not just film, but also onto television and even in some cases into video games. He's been answering fan questions online during the promotion of Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. And he was asked if he intends to create more shows for established live action DC protagonists. And he responded, yes, most definitely, before saying the DCU will be connected across film and TV and animation and he then went later on said some games as well and the animation refers refers to will be both 2d and 3d efforts not everything will be connected he confirmed that some will take place in their own separate worlds for example hbo's harley quinn animated series and obviously um, joker and batman pro- like projects from matt reeves etc won't be part of the main dcu but he's con- Confirmed that he will also continue to write and direct select projects in the future, whilst also acting as basically the linchpin that holds it all together across all the films. And he's revealed that in his dealings on social media, the character that has been the most requested character to be included, you know who it is. I've said it many times. Who is it? Booster Gold. Ah, you've been waiting. I've been waiting. You've been praying to the great God DC and... They have delivered. Uh, His acknowledgement that that's the most requested character certainly sits well with the fans because that suggests to a lot of people that he's got that in mind, that that will be one of the projects that he might write and direct himself. And I think that would be perfect. Nathan Fillion for Booster Gold, calling it right here. Okay. (laughs) This week saw uh, some shots from Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, which is coming to Netflix. Yes, it's wrapped production now, hasn't it? It's, uh, It's in post- I wonder if that'll get a cinema release for uh, a week. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Kind of hope so. It look, it's, you know, it's going to look good no matter what. It will look great. Yeah, it might be one that they take the glass onion approach and give that exclusive week to help promote the main film when it lands on um, Netflix. We'll see. Now, a few months ago, we reported that Legendary were moving away from Warner's. Their deal with Warner's came to a, shall we say, angry end after a lot of their films were forced onto HBO Max last year against Legendary's wishes. Well, Legendary have now found a new home with Sony Pictures. Legendary's movies will now be distributed and marketed globally by Sony, excluding China, where Legendary East handles those duties directly. Sony will also handle the home entertainment and TV distribution for those films. The deal doesn't include the existing Dune and Monsterverse franchises, which are continued to be with Warners. So even though Legendary are still making the sequels to Dune and Godzilla, like Kong, etc. films, Warners have too much invested in them that they don't break away. Uh, And the deal does not cover streaming services. Legendary will continue to partner with other companies on streaming efforts, such as Enola Holmes that they do for Netflix. CEO Joshua Grode from Legendary says in a pointed statement, Sony's commitment to theatrical distribution aligns with our vision of how to best derive the most value for Legendary's movies. A blatant stab at Warner Brothers' decision to force their films onto HBO Max on day and date. We've seen this coming for some time. Yeah. At this point, there's no formal deal for Sony to co-finance Legendary films, though that is a possibility. So all the films that they will be distributing will be funded by Legendary themselves. And then Sony just does the distribution. But it's the start of a a new road for Legendary. 
if we go back to streaming and this past week or so, there's been a lot of buzz about Tim Burton and Netflix's Wednesday series. Now, the series debuted last Wednesday on the streamer and debuted at the top of the list for the most viewed hours of a Netflix debut for an English language TV series. Wow. The eight episode series pulled in a whopping 341.2 million hours viewed in its first week alone. Came in at number one on the global Netflix top 10 for the week of November the 21st to the 27th, which pushes the fourth season of Stranger Things off that top spot. When you consider that Wednesday was a brand new show, I mean, Stranger Things had built up its audience by season four. Wednesday was a brand new thing. So to knock something that was established and had such a fan base off the top spot is so impressive. It also reached the top spot in 83 countries and all ten, and the top 10 in all 93 countries where top 10s are tracked. Uh, Squid Game remains Netflix's top show of all time with 571.76 million hours viewed in its biggest single week. But this was the best launch for a new series that the streamer has ever seen. And it's led to great news that it's been so well received because season two is in pre-production now. You watched it in one lump sum, didn't you? No, I watched it over the space of the week. We were watching like one or two episodes a night, uh, me, wife and the daughter. I didn't want to binge watch this because I wanted to appreciate I wanted to appreciate the mystery of it. I wanted to be able to dwell on things and think through each episode. And I think it worked well watching it over a week. Well worth checking out. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I'm 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 not loving it as much as I'd hoped. But I then again, I, I don't really think it, it was aimed at me. So I can see why. I've I've heard the buzz on it. I've heard a lot of people talking about it and how much they've enjoyed it. I think I well, clearly I'm in the minority. It's not that I dislike it, far from it. It's just it's just something I will pop back to and watch, you know, kind of in my own time rather than than rush to finish it. Um, and Robert De Niro is coming to Netflix for his first ever TV series lead role. Is he now? Well, we've had Harrison Ford move on to TV. Yep. So, and when I read this, I, I racked my brain thinking, surely De Niro's been on TV so, like services. And then I was like, no, he's not. He's never took that step to TV. Nope. But he's attached to star in the limited political thriller series Zero Dale, which comes from Narcos' Eric Newman. Exact plot details, under wraps. But De Niro is tipped to play a former US president. He's never done a lead seri- a series lead before, but he has done telly movies such as HBO's Wizard of Lies. This could be an interesting time for the streamer, bringing in you know quite a prestigious name into one of their shows. This could be yeah. like well, we we know how it all ended, but remember when Kevin Spacey landed on the streamer in um, House of Cards? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a huge. I mean, it's thing. a big deal. I mean, it still is a big deal. I mean, someone like De Niro. Speaking of Kevin Spacey who had been rightly cancelled in the past few years, well, it seems he's no longer going to be cancelled. And he's now tagged to lend his voice to a role in the Gene Fallet's directed thriller, Control, from Cupsco Pictures. This hiring comes ahead of him appearing before the courts in the UK over multiple charges of sexual assault next summer. But the story of the film follows British Home Secretary, played by Lauren Metcalf, as she drives home one night while engaging in a secret love affair with the Prime Minister, Mark Hampton. Meanwhile, another man, Spacey, knows her secret and has been badly affected by it. Seeking revenge, he remotely hijacks her fully self-driving car, forcing her on a rampage through the streets of London using the car she's trapped in as a deadly weapon. Filming is underway and will go into early 2023 at Camberwell Studios. I think the fact that he's only going to provide a voice is probably the, the, the way that they're going to try and get away with well, let's say the controversy around him, because if he's not on screen, maybe maybe yeah. he can get away with it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, I think he will continue to be a controversial figure for uh, a lot of people. 
and I think it's going to be some time before we see him actually back in a picture, certainly in a in a mainstream film. Yeah. And last bit of news, there's a reimagining of the 1969 counterculture classic Easy Rider in early development. What? You say what? When I read this news, I can't quite see how you can make a film like Easy Rider to fit into the day and age that we live in now. The film... Oh, it was a game-changer yeah, film. An absolute game-changer. A drug-fueled motorcycle epic I've seen it described as. The Dennis Hopper directed and starred himself, Fonda, and a young Jack Nicholson. It's considered a classic. It shifted the socio-political landscape in America, scored two Oscar nominations, made 60 million off a report of 400,000 budget. But there's a reimagining and... Apparently, the, the Jean Boulet group are behind the new take and are currently seeking writers, directors to update the project for a modern times, but keep that same edge. Mm, Colour me dubious. I'll be surprised if this one makes it, to, makes it to release. I'll be very surprised if it gets anywhere because this sounds like someone just trying to tap into something without realising that you can't, you can't tap into what this film was. I think we might have to do a deep dive on Easy Rider at some point. Yeah, we should. There was talk of, uh, at some point of a, of a sequel in which Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper would be set in some kind of post-apocalyptic world uh, that Fonda was pushing at some point. And I, if I remember with him to direct, but uh, I don't know how much of that was hearsay and rumour. As I said, colour me dubious. Yeah. Is that it for the news, Andy? That's it for the main news. However, sadly, we've had two losses this week. So first up is the sad passing of Albert Pian. If you grew up in the 80s, then his name was, well, <laughs> all over some of your favourite. I wouldn't say, even say B-movies to a lot of them, but he was... Uh, VHS Rebels. <laughs> yeah, direct-to-video action movies, uh, low-budget B-movies, some of which were great, some of them which were, were not so great, but always interesting. At one point, he was going to direct the very very first adaptation of spider-man way 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 back then when canon pictures had it but he was known uh, for working uh, under low budgets uh, he always brought a sense of style some of his films include cyborg uh, the sword and the sorcerer nemesis and 1989's rather tragic captain america film he had fun there was always a sense of fun and he brought to the uh, he brought to the screen some some classic names uh, people like Jean-Claude Van Damme, Christopher Lambert. Uh, he worked with bigger names uh, such as Snoop Dogg, Rutger mm -hmm. Hauer, Dennis Hopper, Lance Erickson. He was uh, the master of great schlocky uh, sci-fi films and action films. So um, it's it's sad to see him go. We're not going to see his like again. That kind of era has passed, even for, for Amazon Prime or Netflix. I think uh, those kind of four million budgets that played in uh, B-movies or ended up on VHS or were a thing of the past, and he did them very, very, very well. Sword and the Sorcerer, I've got very fond memories of that from my childhood, but it's one of those films that I'm hesitant to revisit because I don't want the illusions to be as shattered as what my memories of Krull were. I'll leave it in yeah. my nostalgia when I loved it. The films of this guy were part of my growing up. That Captain America yeah. film is not good. I mean, it was stripped of its budget halfway through. And it suffered and it as a result. But it had a cheesy VHS charm when I first watched it. And it was all we all we could get hold of back in the yep. day. So I think we had a tendency to like it more than, than we should have. Yep. It, it's far from great. You know what? The script ain't too bad. It was just the delivery. Yeah. And also this week. Now, not a big name, but if you're watching a certain film every Christmas, 
then you have watched this person every Christmas. Clarence Gilliard Jr. was known to, for support roles in several iconic films and services. Died at the age of 66. He first broke through in the role of Sundown in the original Top Gun. But what everyone will recognise him as is the tech whiz Theo amongst Hans Gruber's crew in 1989's Die Hard. The wise-cracking, sarcastic hacker and tech guru was given so much character and personality by Clarence Gilliard Jr. that he's kind of been one of those favourite characters within the film, even without really recognising him. One of my favourite lines of all time, Andy. The quarterback is toast. Great line. He then shifted to television, co-starred with Andy Griffith in four seasons of Matlock before segueing to play Timmy Trevett alongside Chuck Norris in Walker, Texas Ranger. Then he took a sabbatical from acting and ended up being a film and theatre professor at the University of Nevada. He reprised his Die Hard role for a commercial during the Super Bowl a few years ago. But it's definitely his role in Die Hard that he's most remembered for. Even though you don't recognise the name, as soon as you saw him on screen, you recognised him from that. And let's be honest, this time of year, everyone watches Die Hard because everyone insists it's a Christmas movie. Our sincerest condolences go out to his family, friends, the students, everyone who he inspired, and also all the fans of Die Hard who um, can remember him again this year. And that's this week's news. So if you've not subscribed to The Film File, then why not? Because people in Colombia are begging you to. All you have to do, if you do so wish, is head over to your favourite podcast platform, search for the film file, hit that subscription button, remember to leave a like, and why don't you drop us a line? Because remember, a film podcast isn't just for Christmas, it's for life. If you want to know more about the film file, then simply do one of these or all of these few things. You can head over to social media platforms, just search for Film File UK. If we're on there, we'll pop up there. You'll be able to keep up to date on new episode drops, etc. Head over to Mastodon, sign up on Mastodon and search for Film File UK. Find us on there, engage with us directly or directly via email. Podcast at filmfile.uk is the address to use. And we're open to any suggestions of films that you want us to watch, films that you like, top lists, bottom lists. Yeah, we'll listen to anything that you send through. Podcast at filmfile.uk. And if you want to know more about the film file, well, you can tune in every Thursday to No Barriers Radio for the Film File Radio Show. That's the Film File Radio Show every Thursday from 8 o'clock on No Barriers Radio. Head over to nobarriersradio.com and join us there as well. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. Love it or loathe it, but Christmas is nearly upon us. And it's time for us to address that by talking about the 2003 American Christmas comedy directed by John Favreau, starring Will Farrell. Yes, you guessed it. It's Elf. It's Christmas. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. I don't sing. Discover your inner Elf. You better watch out. Critics are raving. Elf is Miracle on 34th Street meets It's a Wonderful Life. Elf. This film came out on November the 7th, 2003 and became a major critical commercial and cultural success, grossing over $220 million worldwide against a budget of only $33 million. Will Farrell's performance as Buddy the Elf was praised by critics and audiences alike and has now been much 
much love. The film inspired a 2010 Broadway musical Elf, an NBC stop-motion animated television special Elf Buddy's Musical Christmas, and it's been hailed as a modern Christmas classic. And for many, it's on their greatest Christmas film list. But what do we think about it? <laughs> well... By the, by the timing of that well, <laughs> I've got a feeling we're going down a less than positive uh, road here. Look, I rewatched this this week because even when it's a film that I've not got much love for, I try to rewatch it anyway. And we've done a few films before in the past that we don't really have much love for, but we try to find the good within it. We don't just want to dwell on the negativity. There is something good in this film that I'll get to, but I don't like this film. I need to say that I normally have love for Will Ferrell. Particularly at this era in his career, he was popping up in things like Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back, old school. He was he was really like, he was captivating me with his style of comedy, his role in Zoolander. However, all of those roles that he captivated me in were support roles. This was one of those films that he was now front and centre and holding it together. And I think that too much Will Ferrell can become too much Will Ferrell. Anchorman worked because he's got the, he's got the able support around him. Whereas this... It's Will Ferrell running round being as childish as Will Ferrell can be without any restraint. And everyone around him seems awkward as a result. You look at the cast lineup in this. You've got the late, great James Caan in there as Buddy's real father. And James Caan is so much better than this film. And it's not that he's phoning in the performance in this. It's as though he reversed the charges at the same time. He just doesn't seem to care. There's nothing to his character to make you go, okay, who is he? What's he doing? And it, does he get any emotion? He's so much better than this. It feels like he was blackmailed into appearing in it. And he gave us, it gives as little as possible to his role as Walter Hobbs. You've also got Mary Steenburgen, who, again, is normally so good. And even in Step Brothers, where she co-starred alongside Will Ferrell again, she was a lot better in that film. But in this, she's just in the background. And not even the delightful Zoe Deschanel can lift this film above the festive tedium level. I'm going to offer a, a counter point of view to that. <laughs> For those who've not seen it, and I don't think there is, it's a story of Buddy, a human who is raised amongst elves at the North Pole, uh, who discovers, due to his, well, he's gigantic size compared to the other elf that he's not in fact a real elf so he travels to new york to search for his biological father and as andy pointed out played by the late great james Caan. i like this i i it's it's not a go-to christmas classic for me but i do like it there are parts of the movie which i think are very smart and play into feral's man-child humor uh, there are parts which are a bit mawkish and i think that's all credit to John Favreau, who just manages to keep on the right side of being overly, overly mawkish and keep giving us something that feels a, a little bit fresh. I, I think I've seen it too many times to be objective about it. It's a film that I certainly in the foreseeable future do not want to go back to. Now, as I said, I don't dislike it. I think there's a lot to like about it. I think I'm just I think I'm just out elf. <laughs> uh, what I do like about it is, and this is the reason that Favreau took the gig, because originally the, the script was much darker. Uh, Favreau had come from independent film, uh, and this was his sort of first major mainstream movie. Uh, and, and an odd choice when you think about 
some of the directors who were going to take it on. It was low budget, but he decided to pay homage to to the Rankin and Bass Christmas specials. You know the yeah. the animated uh, Christmas movies like Frosty the Snowman or the uh, stop motion movies like uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. And that's what I like it. There's a sense of nostalgia, even though it's set in contemporary New York. There's a, a lot of a timeless quality. And I think that works wonderfully uh, because of, of Favreau's style, uh, Favreau's love of, of cinema and, and Favreau's love of those particular style of movies. And it's done a lot of it. It's done practically. The uh, CGI looks uh, CGI and that's a preference which I have to t- uh, totally, totally agree with. I think Zoe Dachanel was great and her singing, which was not even a part of the original script, adds to it and gives uh, the character an- another depth of dimension. And I think she's so great in this and, and it led on to bigger and better roles. So I-, I like it. Don't love it. It's not my go-to Christmas film, but I can understand why people do. I think it's one of those those rarities of, of Christmas comedies that has heart. Mm-hmm. I think it's got a brain. I think it's got a neat sense of humour. It's got a darker side to it. If you care to look, there it is. And I think it's it's super charming. And uh, I can certainly see why John Favreau became the director that he is now, because I think this played into his ability to do stuff that was off the cuff, play with tradition. And I think it leads nicely in him to doing Iron Man because I think he sees the story elements every time. And even with uh, Will Ferrell's uh, sort of mugging about, he, he sticks to a story that doesn't he doesn't lose control over. He doesn't make it kind of sticky and over-sentimental. I'd say that the film Zathora more led in, into Iron Man territory than this did. That was a stronger Favreau film that followed two years later. The script for this film was originally written by David Berenbaum before it was re- underwent multiple rewrites by different people. And Berenbaum also wrote scripts for things like Haunted Mansion, Zoom, Strange Magic. I think you can see where part of the problems for this film came from. I was certainly in the minority in disliking this film on release. I revisited it a couple of years afterwards. After all, I'd enjoyed Faddle, like I said, in so many other things, but I still didn't get the love. And this rewatch, I did want to try and find something positive. And I did find something that I have enjoyed every time that I watched it. And it's only about four or five minutes long. And it's the scene with Peter Dinklage turning up as Miles Finch, the esteemed children's book writer. That scene is brilliant. And that's because Dinklage appears to be the only member of the cast who puts an effort in. And he really gets into the role. And as he's calling him an elf, and he's like, call me elf one more time. And he's like, you're a grumpy elf. And he launches across the table, breaks me. And for that one scene alone, it gets a star. That one scene alone just about saves the film from being utter mediocrity. And if the rest of the film had been so well done as that scene, this could have been a great Christmas movie for me. But as it is, it's a representation of everything wrong with Christmas embodied into one. When mediocrity is kind of embraced as fun and festive and any negative criticism results in being told that you're just grumpy and unfestive. I've been told so many times that I'm just grumpy for not liking this film. <laughs> and it's like, no, I just... I won't, tell, I won't call you. I just don't like this film. As far as I'm concerned, a bad movie is a bad movie no matter what time of the year it releases. And it's the same with music around Christmas. There's loads of Christmas music that is garbage that at any other time of the year you would listen to and go, that's garbage. If I suggested watching Elf in July, would you sneer and say, it's not Christmas, I'm not watching it? Probably. Why? Because you realise you need to have that mawkish element 
of me mediocrity in your brain to let you embrace it. This is a Hallmark Channel kind of Christmas film as far as I'm concerned. Now, you could say, well, because it's set at Christmas, you, you can't watch it during July. Okay, if I told you to watch Die Hard in July, you, would you watch it? Yeah, you would, because it's a good film regardless of the time of year. This is just not a good film for me. And I've tried, I have tried to find the positive in it, but I just can't. It just doesn't work for it. It just embodies everything that I think ruins ruins films around Christmas. If you're acknowledging that this film needs the season to be enjoyed, then it isn't actually a good film. I'm glad that people enjoy it. I'm glad it was a success because we got to see what Jon Favreau would do next. He did Zathora, which I've got a lot of love for. He then went on to make the Iron Man and the rest is history. But as a whole, it's just never quite gelled with me. The film did so well, of course, there was talk of a sequel. There was even a name touted, Elf 2, Buddy Saves Christmas. Oh, they missed, a, missed an opportunity by calling it Buddy Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> but Farrell stated that he didn't want to make a film, said he doesn't go back to uh, stories where he doesn't think there's a story to be told. James Kahn reaffirmed that a sequel was highly unlikely, stating, which I didn't know, that Farrell and Favreau really didn't get along. So now it seems highly, highly unlikely. And I don't think we should ever have a sequel. I think it was one of those uh, flash-in-the-pan movies which caught the public's attention at the right time, the right place of both filmmakers' careers. And that's kind of movie magic. Will Ferrell saying he never goes back to a project that there's not really a further story. Come on, guy, you gave us Anchorman 2. <laughs> Yeah, we'll never forgive him for that one. <laughs> and that was terrible. It's a film that I will never connect with. That's it. I've done my very final attempt to get enjoyment from this film. I'm glad that other people enjoy it because I'm sure there's a load of films that I really enjoy that loads of other people dislike and can't understand my reasoning. But suffice to say that even though it's a festive film that everyone watches every year, next year is going to be unbearable as it celebrates its 20th anniversary release. If you're a fan of Elf, let us know. <laughs> if you dislike Elf, let us know. So if you want to watch Elf, Andy, other than you, where can the rest of us find it? It is on a fair few of the streaming services. I watched it on um, Sky Movies, Now TV. I believe it's also available on Netflix. Just do a search for Elf. It'll pop up on one of your services because it's been out there for so long. Everyone shows it at this time of year. We've got another deep dive for you next week. And now it's time for some reviews. And Andy, I think you've seen three films that I really, really fancy. Yes. We'll start the ball rolling. It's been out for a couple of weeks on Netflix. And that's uh, based on the Little Nemo comic strip stories by Windsor McKay, Slumberland. Everyone is talking about the number one movie on Netflix. Slumberland. Slumberland. Like I said, number one. It's the perfect adventure for the holidays with a magical and heartwarming story that both kids and adults will love. What are we waiting for? That's a spare. Jason Momoa delivers contagious joy. Who dreams of driving a garbage truck? Killer tats. Drive your truck faster, sir. Slumberland. Rated PG. Now playing. Based on the comic strip Little Nemo in Slumberland by Windsor McKay, Slumberland tells the tale of a young girl named Nemo who, after her father was lost at sea, goes to live with her uncle. She discovers that she can escape the real world through her dreams, entering Slumberland, where she encounters Flip, a roguish con artist who was once the dream friend of her father. The pair find themselves on a quest to seek a special pearl which will grant them a wish, which Nemo sees as a chance to reunite her with her father. And so the two begin a fantastic journey of imagination through other people's dreams in order to get to the pearl. 
Directed by Francis Lawrence, who gave us films such as Constantine, I Am Legend, and multiple Hunger Games films, the film looks fantastic, with the visual flair lent to the myriad of dreamscapes that the pair traverse being creative, artistic, and genuinely spectacular. Lending well into this fabulous imagination land is the look and character of Flip, very different to the character depicted in the comic strip, but with Jason Momoa inhabiting the role and making it his own, it comes to wonderfully roguish life throughout the film. Young Marlo Barkley, as Nemo, has enough presence on screen to bring the character to life and to help audiences engage with her sense of empty loss of her father and her quest to find him again. Chris O'Dowd plays Nemo's Uncle Philip, a boring and mundane man who struggles with the new responsibility of raising Nemo and adds a genuine sense of awkwardness to the character with his unique comic charm that he brings to most of his roles. Slumberland reminded me of the type of fantastic adventure films that I gravitated towards during my childhood. Films like Neverending Story, Labyrinth, etc. And it taps into that family adventure market well. Whilst entirely predictable and never really surprising at any point, it's the journey that's the joy and the characters we take it with. Momoa and Barkley strike a strong rapport throughout and it would take a cold heart indeed to not root for them as they encounter the various perils. All in all, this is a decent offering from Netflix and one that looks visually striking and effortlessly engaging. It's a treat for families over the December season. So that's Slumberland that's been on Netflix for a few weeks. On Netflix, landed this weekend, is the Norwegian giant monster film, Troll. Directed by Ro Uthaug, who gave us 2018's Tomb Raider film, Troll is a Norwegian monster movie that sees an ancient troll awaken from slumber in the mountains who then begins a devastating trek through the country, headed towards the capital city of Oslo. Attempting to stop it are Nora Tideman, played by Annie Marie Willman, a paleontologist whose father always taught her the myths and legends of trolls. And there's a military unit led by Captain Chris Holm, who's played by Mads Sogard Pettersen. But military might might not be enough to stop the destruction, and maybe the old fairy tales hold some element of truth to them. Troll, which Othog has been developing for two decades, is essentially a Norwegian Godzilla, with very similar themes, motifs and events, as we come to expect from that monster movie kind of series. The film smartly knows these similarities to other monster movies, and a sly reference to King Kong makes it clear that they aren't aiming for anything more than the same kind of approach. The cast of characters are well drawn upon, with quite a few standard tropish characters you expect within the genre, and whilst the plot is predictable and derivative, it doesn't stop the rest of the film more than making up for it in fun, peril and pacing. The film also looks and sounds marvellous. The use of environment, the lavish landscapes from which the troll emerges, sometimes hidden within the grand mountain escapes, and the contrast of the cityscapes of Oslo, which find themselves under assault by the monster, all looking stunning. The effects work is packed with detail, and the film certainly delivers on spectacle at points. Weaving Norwegian myth into the tale lends something a little fresh to the action, and the score from Johans Ringen is just the icing on the cake, capturing the intensity throughout. Troll may not be very original, but it is effective enough to bring some joy to fans of the monster genre, and it paces well at just over 100 minutes. It's a stomping good time. And the film that I'm really looking forward to, Andy, is... Yes, landed at cinemas this week, been doing well at the box office worldwide. It's a festive treat that everyone needs to see. Violent Night. Welcome to your worst Christmas ever. We're here with the $300 million. That's what I want for Christmas. 
Santa, are you gonna help us? These guys are police Navi dead. You better watch out. Santa Claus is coming to town. Stocking stuffer! I gotta watch. I believe in you, Santa. Violent night. <laughs> Santa has lost his Christmas spirit, and at the start of the film, he sat in a bar in Bristol, taking a break from his Christmas Eve routine, lamenting over the modern attitudes to the season, before continuing on his magical quest to deliver presents around the world. However, one of his next stops, that of the Lightstone estate, where a wealthy family are gathered for another forcibly festive evening, sees him caught up in a dangerous situation as a group of mercenaries led by a man known as Mr. Scrooge take the family hostage whilst they attempt to steal 300 million that is stored in the family's safe. Only Santa can save the hostages and save Christmas. Let's be honest, this is Die Hard, only with Santa in the lead. And thankfully, the film knows this and even pays multiple references and homages to that series of films. And as a result, it's an absolute blast of fun. David Harbour makes for a solid, world-weary and grizzled Santa right from the start. And the rest of the cast all lend their own presences well around him. The Lightstone family, headed up by the matriarch Gertrude, played by Beverly D'Angelo, a cold parental figure who takes pleasure in making her offspring fight for her love and wealth. They're all easy to hate, but they're also very easy to pity at times. Alex Hassel plays favourite son Jason. His sibling rivalry with Edie Patterson's Alva creates some tense and amusing moments throughout. And importantly, there's also Alexis Lauder as Linda, Jason's estranged wife, and their daughter Trudy, played by Leah Brady which create a dysfunctional family unit that you care about. But it's in the mercenaries, led by John Luguizamo's Mr. Scrooge, and their bloody and brutal interplay with Harbour, where the film really comes jarring to life. The action is well shot. It allows us to feel every crushing blow and wince at some of the more shocking violence on screen. There's something captivatingly joyous about seeing Santa beating up bad guys, and the film even has some fun with a scene that pays a tribute to Home Alone, only in a far more brutal manner. Violent Night is sure to be a festive favourite for those who gravitate towards the alternative Christmas entertainment, and it certainly packs the spirit of the season into the mix, whilst never feeling mawkish. It's an action-fueled treat, and any fans of Die Hard should definitely check this out. And finally, a a film that I've seen, and, and maybe I wish I hadn't, and that's Noah Baumbach, he, the husband of Greta Gerwig's new film, White Noise. They don't look scared in the Crown Victoria. Yeah, they're laughing. These guys aren't laughing. Where? In the country square. What does it matter what they're doing in other cars? I want to know how scared I should be. Jack, as long as the children are here, we're safe. May the days be endless. Let the seasons drift. Do not advance the action according to a plan. I like Noah Baumbach, and I like that sort of millennial kind of New Yorky angsty type feel that he brings. I really like some of Noah Baumbach's work, especially his first feature, Kicking and Screaming. 
1995 comedy about four young men graduating from college. I think it's a marvellous film. I love the fact that he's worked on such films as Steve Sisu with Wes Anderson and he co-wrote the script for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Was less impressed by uh, Margot at the Wedding and, strangely enough, The Squid and the Whale. But I did love 2019's uh, Marriage Story, which I thought was an, an amazing and naked performance from Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. Mm. Anyway, he's back with, I guess, his uh, idea for a disaster movie. We get Adam Driver as a professor, along with his wife, who live busy lives. He teaches at a college teaching about Hitler. So he's a Jewish guy who's teaching about Hitler. Stay with me. And they have constant worries about death. Anyway, that's shown into sharp uh, relief when uh, an accident throws a cloud of chemical waste over their town with an event known as the airborne toxic event. And we are suddenly thrown into kind of mumblecore relationships, millennial angst uh, with a real threat. And then I was out. Adam Driver is kind of okay in this. His wife, played by the director's real wife, is a delight in front of the camera. And she's just one of those joys that you ever see on screen. But the film gets ridiculously talky. This film kind of morphs from this odd, uh, annoying family drama into an odd, annoying, dupe-mongering dystopia movie. And the two don't gel together. And in fact, none of the characters gel together and it just becomes sort of incoherent. It's an odd dynamic that doesn't really work. If you ever wondered if someone like Noah Baumbach could make a disaster movie, he can, but I don't think this is it. It's when satire goes too far and just ends up being... Well, annoying as some of the characters in the film. That's a shame. I do like Bonebark's work. Yeah, I, I do. And, he, and he's got a style. Yeah. I know that reviews have been average to middling on this one. So it seems like it's one that is causing people to be most ends of the scale uh, when it comes to reviews. I'll get around to watching it at some point and share my opinion with you then. And that's it for this week's films. But Andy, what have we got coming up? Uh, it's a pretty much the calm before the storm this week because the storm next week is going to be Avatar. So this weekend at the cinemas, not a lot coming out. The Silent Twins, which is the real-life story of June and Jennifer Gibbons uh, from Wales in the 70s and 80s. And anime fans, there's another anime out there, and I've never heard of this one before, the Quintessential Quintupulates movie. Wow, that's a title that just... Rolls off the tongue. Drops off the lips and just sort of hangs in midair. I think it took my tongue with it. But yeah, that'll be landing this week. And no doubt we've seen how the animes do on the big screen. No doubt this will bring in an audience. But there's a variety of older festive treats across the country on limited shows. Check your local listings for your local cinema, because films such as Elf... Batman Returns, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, Home Alone, etc., 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 are flooding the box office this week for chances to catch them. Over on streaming, there's not a great deal on streaming unless you like mawkish Christmas films because every streaming service seems to be dropping one per week at least. But on Now TV and Sky, we've got The Amazing Maurice, which is, a, we'll say, a kind of adaptation of the Terry Pratchett story. It's uh, it's not looking very faithful to it, but I'm going to give it a shot. I do like me Pratchett. One thing that I won't be watching, but if you're really that desperate to, for something to watch, maybe the Nan movie might be right up your alley. It's not up mine. I can definitely, definitely say it's not up my alley. One film that I know that we'll both be talking about next week that we've both been looking forward to, though, is Netflix's Del Toro's Pinocchio, which lands this weekend. Yeah, looking forward to that. 
on Disney Plus. It got an average review off me when it came out. It lands on Disney Plus this week, Amsterdam. And a film that we spoke about last week, Muppets Christmas Carol, the extended edition, lands on Disney Plus this coming week. And that's about it for the streaming services. We mentioned it last week in our deep dive, but the Muppets Christmas Carol is currently on tour across the country with a live orchestra. So you get to see the film and you get to see it with a live performance as well. It plays Sheffield this week, but by the time this comes out, you'll have missed it. And I'm guessing that's about it for this week, Andy. That's about it. But before we go, and we do this every week, of course we do, it's this week's Neat Things, things that we've enjoyed, things that we want to tell you about. Andy, your neat thing is... Over on Amazon. It's based on the 2016 sci-fi novel by esteemed father of cyberpunk, William Gibson, and stars Chloe Grace Moretz. I've read Now, I've not read more of his recent stuff, which meant that I went into the TV series of The Peripheral with no idea of what to expect. Executive produced for Amazon by Westworld creators Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. They were the names that initially drew me in. This series sees Chloe Grace Moretz as Flynn Fisher, a girl with a knack for VR video games, who subs in for her brother Burton, Jack Rayner, on a testing of a new experimental tech, but finds that the re- what she believes is a realistic VR world is actually the future. She's inhabiting another body to be represented there and gets involved in some conspiracy and espionage that's going on. However, the future and the past are tightly interwoven, and soon her life in the present is placed in direct danger as her meddling in events of the future starts to become known. It's wonderfully creative sci-fi, as you'd kind of expect from the mind of Gibson. And Moretz, who, remember a few months ago, I said that she's not really showed the potential that she clearly should be. She's finally got a role that she leads in. She's brilliant throughout. I've got about two more episodes left to watch. I am completely in with this. It's got all the best aspects of William Gibson's use of cyber technology and like visions of the future, but not a distant future, very believable, on our doorstep kind of future. And it's just got a great cast and great drama throughout. Well worth checking out. So that's The Peripheral on Amazon. Season two apparently has already been greenlit, so we don't have to worry about it getting cancelled as soon as it gets to the end of this season. My neat thing for this week is a gig that I went to uh, just the other day. They played Sheffield as part of their sort of Christmas run. They kind of come around every couple of years and deliver a fantastic show every Christmas. Not just a Christmas band, you get them for life. And that is the Bootleg Beatles. So when it comes to tribute bands, there is only one Beatles tribute band that's worth mentioning, and that is the Bootleg Beatles. Uh, The clever thing about the Bootleg Beatles is that they started way back in the early 1980s, uh, originally with some of the cast from the London stage production of Beatlemania. uh, And some of the guys invested in their dwindling finance in a couple of guitars and some wigs and some uh, some clothing and went out and, and proved to be incredibly successful. They have toured the world and they are constantly sort of reinvented themselves so if somebody gets too old uh they replace them and there is as you are just basically replacing actors in a long-running tv series about the current lineup for the bootleg beatles were fantastic uh and it's such a clever show i mean these guys can sell out sheffield city hall and it was sold out uh and, and it's almost more than a gig it's almost theater because they divide the show up into four. So part one is the Cavern Club years from 62 to 63. Uh, And each time that they come on stage, there are 
clever montages that that recreate and show adverts and film clips and musical clips from that era. Uh, part two is the Beatlemania years, the touring years, 64 to 66. You get a, an interval. This year they came back with part three, which when I've seen them before was the Sergeant Pepper era. Uh, this time they came back with the Magical Mystery Tour. They go off again, more video. And uh, for part four, we get the Let It Be Abbey Road sessions, uh, including the rooftop concert. And it is a delight. It is the closest thing that I think you'll ever get to see the Beatles because what they do, including having an orchestra on stage, they get to see some of the songs that the Beatles just found too tricky to do live when they, they stop touring. So you get the orchestral numbers, you get the, the Beatles at their most experimental and they stay in character for the entire gig, even though when they're talking about contemporary things. And there's always that kind of nod and a wink when they reference an album that came out in, in 1967, costing how much it did then to the suddenly the £45 deluxe edition being out now. And there was a, a lovely ongoing gag between Paul McCartney and, and John Lennon talking about who had the most A-sides and B-sides. <laughs> it, it's just a delight. As I say, it's closer to theatre than it is just a, a rock and roll show. And it is probably the most loving tribute to the Beatles that I think I've ever seen. And that's my neat thing for this week. And that's it for this week. It's been a bit of a meandering show. It's been a bit... Yeah, um, we've been all, all over, over the place, place, haven't we? I, th I think both of us are just really feeling the, uh, the exhaustion that this time of year can bring, isn't it? I'm just looking forward now to uh, a Christmas break more than anyone can ever know. Time to clear my yes. head. Time to put this year behind us and move on. I think. Yep. And of course, we will be back again uh, next week for another film file. So Andy, anything planned for this week or are you just chilling out? Next few days of work and then a week of chilling out and also hopefully getting some video content out there on that old YouTube. Yep. And that's time to boost those uh, those figures as we've done remarkably well on Spotify. Be interesting to know how we're doing on all our other platforms. I know we're doing very well on the radio. Uh, we're up to 30,000 listeners, I think we said last time. Yep. Uh, tell all your friends, come and join the party. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Goodbye from this guy at the end of the microphone. And uh, goodbye from that guy at the end of the microphone. And Andy, I'm sorry I ruined your life. And I crammed 11 cookies into your VCR. <laughs> varying degrees of quality but i do love a good ghost story at christmas cool <laughs> well, that one, that pause will be edited out as you look quizzically at me so i thought i thought you were going to rattle into something then but no, you didn't no, <laughs> so we, we just basically stared at each other on the camera for about 20 <laughs> seconds yeah. i thought you'd frozen <laughs> Just eat that. I thought you were going to go on longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Mm. <laughs> to unwrap in this week's The News. Oh, juicy, juicy items. <laughs> <laughs> You've been on, have you been on the gin? <laughs> been on the cooking, Sherry? <laughs> and that's my deep dive for this week. Uh, and think? that's us done for this week. You said that that's my deep dive for this week. Did I? Yes. And that's my deep dive for this week. You've and said that's it again. Us. <laughs> did, did I? Oh, sorry, I did. Uh, <laughs> shall I do all that again? Shall I just leave the room and come back in? <laughs> and that's my neat thing for this week. We will be back next week with uh, a, 
some more stuff and nonsense. And of course, <laughs> we will be back again uh, next week for another. What do we do? <laughs> another film file. <laughs>